chapter 4. If you want to use a pew Bible, that is on page 820, 820. And again, if you will, will you join me in a word of prayer as we come to God's word? Our Lord and our God, we come thankful for the salvation that is in Christ, salvation that has been brought to us by your Holy Spirit, who has given us a new heart. And Lord, uh, we come now to your word. We thank you for your word that has been given by inspiration of that same spirit. And we again plead and ask that your spirit will give help both in the preaching and the hearing of your word today. Lord, may our triune God be lifted up, be exalted. May hearts be drawn to you. This cannot be done in the power of the flesh. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it is by your spirit. So we ask that you would be gracious and you would give help to us this day. We ask this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We are making our way through the epistle of 1 John. And what we have seen as we go through John, that John is repeating three main notes that he hits upon again and again. And uh, this is John saying what a Christian looks like. These are things that will be characteristically true of them, not perfectly true of them, but it will be true of them to some degree and growing more and more to be true of their life. There will be an evidence of righteousness, a pursuing after holiness, seeking to be godly, those who have been born of God. Secondly, there will be an orthodox test. There will be a confession concerning the truth of the gospel, particularly the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We looked at this last week, that those who have been born of God, they are those who confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that the Son of God became a man, was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died, was buried, was raised again. There is a confession that will be made by them, and they will be those who confess this Christ of the Scriptures. And the third test is that of love, that God's people will be those who have a love for one another. These are the fingerprints of God's grace upon an individual's life, those whose lives have been changed by the grace of God. And we come to this section this morning, which is 1 John 4, verses 7 uh, through 11 that we read earlier. And what we find here is John is repeating again for the third time this command to love one another. We see it there in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. He has already dealt with this in chapter Two, or excuse me, chapter two, yes, and chapter three. And now this is the third time that he is coming back to this. Now, John is an old apostle at this time. He is probably in his 80s. Now, some might think he's a little senile because he keeps repeating himself. And, uh, you know, there are people that tend to do that as they get older. I remember hearing a story of a, a, a mother who told her daughter, I went to visit your grandmother, and she kept repeating herself. If I ever start doing that, I want you to tell me. And she said, I told you that last week. 
Well, John is not senile here. He's not repeating himself. By the way, other things happen too. You forget things. I apologize to you, Jordan. It took me the longest time to get Jordan and Josh straight, and I blew it again. So Jordan is marrying Jennifer. So it's a good thing I'm not marrying you, because that would be very embarrassing if I did it then. Anyway, I digress. Here is the third time that John gives this command. He's not seen now. He is filled with the Spirit of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine. So what he gives here is, again, this vital, important Christian truth. This is really one of the crowning, if not the crowning thing that should describe a Christian that they are a person who loves. And this is what John is now going to focus his attention upon. Each time that he repeats these commands, he adds something a little different. He comes from a different perspective. And the perspective that he has here is that this love flows to us from the very throne of God itself, from God the Father, through his Son, by his Spirit, this love that we know and have come to experience if we are a Christian and is a part and a characteristic of our life, it has come by the grace and the mercy of God. And so John is hitting on this again because it is so vitally important that God's people love one another. Love will be characteristic of their life. They're growing in this. And we need to be reminded of that. So John a third time tells us, we need to be reminded that we are called to love one another. And so here is the third command to Christian love. And this is, this is a glorious part of the book of 1 John. Because this love that we know and experience flows from the throne of God. And it is rooted in the magnanimous love of God to us in Christ. And this kind of is maybe the pinnacle of 1 John. Robert Law in his commentary said this concerning this portion of God's word here. Here, the epistle rises to its most sublime height. It is impossible to conceive that the theme, which is the ethical heart of Christianity, could be more nobly enshrined than in these few sentences of gold, pure and unadorned, brief as the paragraph is. It is worthy to be set beside the prologue of the fourth gospel as the loftiest that man has ever been inspired to write. Quite a statement about these few compact verses here. And I love 1 John 4.10. You hear me quote that often. This is true love, and it flows to us from our God. And so John emphasizes this aspect of love that we are called to have for one another. And secondly, we see the supernatural origin of Christian love. In verse 7, he says, Behold, let us love one another for... And he's going to elaborate on why we should love and where this love comes from. And it is a supernatural love. This love is divine. Notice in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves has been 
born of God. Then in verse 8, he says, God is love. This is an affirmation, a propositional statement about who God is. That God is love. God is love. It's a part of his eternal nature. And here we see it is one of his perfections. And as we think about God, who is love, love is something that is expressed. It is something that is shown. It is external, we might say. It goes out. And God is love. And when we think about eternity, eternity past before God ever created the world, there was love. Now, how is love expressed by God? Well, there is a triunity of love. The father loves his son. He delights in his son. And the son loves his father. The father loves the spirit. And the spirit loves the father. And there is this Trinitarian love for all eternity past in which there was this triune love. This love then overflows in creation. When God created the world in Genesis 1, we see the love of God being overflowing, if you will, and poured out upon his creation and this beautiful created world that he made and all the wonderful things. And then Adam and Eve there who were image bearers, they were to be like him and to reflect him, to know his love, and they had fellowship with him. So this love then is expressed, we might say historically. Secondly, this love is divine, but this love has come into our world in a very real way. It has been demonstrated in the gospel itself. God's love overflows to rebel sinners after the fall. Here is God pursuing sinners who have rebelled against him, fallen in Adam. And there is a sense in which God's love is for all, all humanity to some degree, that God's love is like common grace. He causes the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to, to rise upon the just and the unjust. We're thankful for the rain that we got today. God in his grace pours out this rain that is so vital to our life. He pours it out on a world in rebellion against him. And so there is a sense of God's common love or common grace. But what John focuses on here is God's particular saving love. And this love is demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we read in verse 9, In this, the love of God was manifested. This word manifested has the idea of it comes into full view. It, it, it is seen in its fullness. It's fully known. It's displayed. Well, how has this love been manifested that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him? John's writing to the people of God. He's saying, we have come to know this love, and this love has been manifested to us in Christ, and it has come that we might live, that we might have life that we might have the very life of God himself. This is something that he imparts to 
sinners. This is his grace and his mercy, and this love has been manifested to us. And John's perspective here as he speaks about this gospel is from the Father's point of view. It is the Father who sent his Son. This love emanates, as it were, from the Father, and it comes to us through the Son and is applied by the Spirit of God. We see the Trinity woven in this passage of Scripture that John gives to us here. And the Father has sent his only begotten Son. Now, when we think about that, that God sent his Son into the world, that that tells us that Christ had a pre-existence. That Christ did not just begin at the time of Bethlehem. He sent his son into the world. Jesus had a pre-existence. None of us have had that. We all have a birthday, don't we? Some of you got a birthday, I think, this week. Happy birthday to you. Uh, There's one back there. A couple back there. And as we think about a birthday, that's when our life began. As we think about the person of Jesus Christ, he pre-existed. And the manner in which he pre-existed is told by us in John in his prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father sent his Son into the world. His Son was manifested and came into full view. The love of God was incarnate in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself would say in John eight fifty five. Before Abraham was, I was. He has always existed as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, and he was manifest. The Father sent him into this world. This word, only begotten, has this idea of there's no one else like him. He is the one and only Son of the Father, and he has eternally been the Son of the Father. And he is the son of the father's love. He loves his son. And then we come to verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. We need to understand that. It was not us who was seeking God. It was not us who was loving God. We were fallen in Adam. We loved our sin We loved ourselves. We were rebels against God. But it was God who loved us. And he loved us by sending his son. He sent his own son into this world that he might make. It's a big word, but it's an important word in the scriptures. That he might make propitiation for Our sins. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? Our sins have separated us from a holy God. We cannot fix our problem. We cannot fix the sin problem. But the Father sent his Son to deal with the sin problem. 
Propitiation is a word that's used a handful of times in the Bible, but it's a very important word. And propitiation has the idea of to appease or to placate. It's the idea of to turn away wrath by making satisfaction. If you back into somebody's car in the parking lot, they may be a little upset with you. Well, if you want to appease them, you want to make propitiation, you you say, I'll take care of it. I'll fix the problem. This is what Christ has done as he has come into this world. He has come to deal with the sin problem. So as we think about propitiation, it assumes that there is wrath toward us by a holy God, that we are under the wrath of God left to ourselves, and we need to be rescued. So propitiation presupposes the wrath and the displeasure of God because sin evokes God's anger and his displeasure. He cannot wink at sin. He must deal with sin. Now, God's wrath is its not like often what we see displayed in humans. That's capricious, that is uncontrolled, that is irrational. Someone blows a gasket and they're angry at their spouse or their boss and they blow up and they're out of control. That is not the kind of wrath that God has. It is a holy wrath. And like love, wrath is one of God's perfections. It is true of him. He is holy. He is just, but he is a wrathful God, and he must deal with the issue of sin at some point. He must bring judgment. So God's wrath is holy. Robert Raymond said this, that God's wrath is simply his instinctive holy indignation and the settled opposition of his holiness to sin which because he is righteous expresses itself in judicial punishment. God will one day deal with all sin and it will be judged in one of two places. It will either be judged in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we're a believer and we're united to Christ, it is judged there for us. But if we're not united to Christ by faith, our sin will be judged in the last day. And there will be a day of eternal punishment and judgment. But here is this good news of the gospel. That the father has sent his son into the world to be the propitiation. To make satisfaction for the sinner's wrongdoing. For my guilt. And so here is this word that speaks about making satisfaction for the law of God that has been broken for the judgment that is due to me. And what happened when Jesus Christ died on that cross is that the Father judged him in the place of the sinner, in the place of his people, all those who would ever believe in him, that God dealt with my sin problem there. And what Jesus Christ did is that he absorbed in himself the full punishment and wrath of a holy God in the place of the guilty. He died the just for the unjust. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him.
so it is Christ who bears this all to himself. And therefore, he appeases, we might say, he propitiates God on behalf of his people. I was thinking this week of our brother Mark Webb, and he was here many years ago, and he gave a wonderful illustration of this idea of propitiation. And he talked about the settlers when they were moving westward, and they were in their covered wagons, and they had their cattle and their families, and they were traveling westward. And as they were going maybe on the Oregon Trail, they were going through the prairies, and maybe there had been a time of drought, and everything is dry and brittle. And as they're traveling, maybe somehow uh, through carelessness or lightning, there is a fire that begins a fire and the brush begins to burn. And that's not uncommon. And these become raging fires. So here you are with your family and you're traveling and your wagon and your goods and everything as you're moving westward and there is this fire that is approaching you from the back and it is coming quickly. The winds would stir up. They could be 35 miles an hour that this fire would be coming. There's no way to outrun the fire. It is a deadly fire. It will consume you. It will consume your family and all that you have. And what they would often do is that as they would travel, they would stop and they would start another fire. That would seem to be a strange thing to do but they would start another fire that would be in front of them. And that fire, as the wind would come, it would burn in front of them going forward. And then what they would do is once that burn had gone, they would take their wagons, their goods, and they would go into the area that had already been burnt. Why would they do that? The reason is because the fire cannot burn twice. And so it is with the work of Christ. He himself bore the wrath of God in the place of all of those who would ever put their trust in him. And that wrath cannot burn twice. It fell upon Jesus Christ. He was made to be sin for us. And so John says, here is this great love of the Father that he sent his son, his dearly beloved son, that he has loved from all eternity. He has sent him into this world to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, in paganism, what happens there is you find the worshiper trying to appease their gods. We must do something to remove the wrath of God We must bring sacrifices. We must do whatever, religious activities and rituals to remove the wrath of God against us. It's not what we find here. It is God himself who is providing the sacrifice, making the propitiation, turning away his own wrath and anger against us by his son's work on our behalf. And what we find in the gospel is this, that in the gospel, God, we must must be saved from God by God. We must be saved from the wrath of God 
We deserve the wrath of God, but we must be saved from the wrath of God, and we must be saved from that wrath by God. And that's exactly what God does in this gospel. Many get offended by the cross. Many do not like to think about a bloody cross, this man dying on a cross, They reject the idea of a bloody sacrifice. They reject the idea of God's wrath, his justice, a substitute. But John would have us to know that you cannot affirm anything about the love of God apart from the cross of Christ. This is where the love of God is displayed. This is where the love of God is found. Paul will write in Romans 8, What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? That's where the love of God is found. Nowhere else. It's found in Christ and in union, excuse me, in union with him. Now thirdly this morning, we see the experiential nature of Christian love. From our perspective, we have become, if we're a Christian and we've come to faith in Christ, this love has become a part of who we are. And so for a Christian, for a true believer, Christian love is not mere lip service. Lip service to God and lip service to others. Love is not something that's on the periphery of one's life. It is a part of who they are as a child of God. And John brings that out to us here. This love is supernaturally imparted. This love of God, God is love, it has been manifested in his son, but this love has been imparted and made a part of who We are as children of God. Notice in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves, notice this, is born of God. This kind of love that John's been talking about. This agape kind of love that is this love of God. Everyone that experiences this kind of love and can witness this love in their life, they have been born of God. So this love is supernaturally, it is supernaturally imparted. John is known as the apostle of love, but we could also say John is the apostle of the new birth. More than any other apostle in the New Testament, John speaks about the new birth. Words like being born again, born from above, Here, being born of God, he uses this five times in this little epistle. A new birth. This is something that God himself does in the salvation of a sinner. We read from Ephesians 2, didn't we? That we were dead in sin and transgressions. We were children of wrath. We were sons of disobedience going our own way. Living in the lust of our flesh living our life for ourselves, And in this salvation, this salvation that comes from God, there is a radical change that takes place. 
In fact, it is referred to as a new birth. There is a spiritual life that is now generated in the life of the sinner. And this is something that only God can do. It's not something that we do. We are passive in this. Everywhere it's used in the Bible, it's, it's, a, it's a passive thing on our end. We are the recipients of this, just as in our physical birth. We had nothing to do with our physical birth. We were just born. And so it is spiritually. This is the work of God. And by his spirit, he initiates it. He accomplishes it. And it is effective. There's no stillbirths. There's a no aborted birth in this new birth. This affects and brings about a new creation, a new life. And therefore, secondly, we see this love is inevitable. This love that John has been writing about, that will be true of every believer and will be a sign that they, are, they belong to Christ, is that there is this fruit of love in their life. It's a result of this new birth. It's what this new birth effects. It brings about a new nature. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. So it effects change, and it comes to us from the Father, through the Son, and applied to us by the Spirit. And there is this love that is created in the hearts of God's people. John's convinced of this. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, here's the word, is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. If we've been born of God, he says, we will love others who are born of God. It's inevitable. This will be a sign of God's grace and his mercy. This is one of the evidences of the new birth. It is brought about by the grace and the mercy of God. Now, as we look at this passage, there's a sense in which when we think about this love of God, that we ought to love in return. If God's loved us this way, we we ought to show love, right? And he says this in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the only reasonable thing we should, in light of this, sometimes you'll say to your children when someone has graced them or gifted them with something, what do you say? What ought you to say? What's the right response? Well, you're to say thank you. And that is true. But in verse 7 here, John is telling us, as we think about this, it's not just what ought to be, But what is, this will be the effect of the new birth. This will be what comes about when the Spirit of God regenerates and changes a heart. They will be people who will be marked by a God-like love. A love that is able to forgive. A love that is able to extend grace and mercy to others. A love that is able to Um, minister grace to others by the grace of God. We have in 1 Corinthians a description of love, that love is, it suffers long, it's kind, it does not envy, it doesn't boast, 
It's not rude. It it doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. This love is going to be demonstrated in the life of the believer. They will become more and more like their father because they are born of him and they will reflect his likeness. And they will be like their elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, one of the most wonderful passages concerning Christ. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Jesus Christ. That though he existed in the very form of God, he humbled himself, he came into this world, humbled himself to the point of death upon a cross. Now, brothers and sisters, John or Paul says, let this mind be in you. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Put the needs of others above your own and reach out and minister and love even as Christ has loved us. Now, notice what John says here. It says in verse 7, everyone who is born of God will love in this way, and they are the ones who truly know God. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This kind of love that John's talking about, that the Bible is talking about, a love for the people of God, a love for God himself, a love for Christ. This is a mark of a child of God. If that is not true of us, then we do not know God. That's what John is saying. We are yet under the wrath of God. We are yet children of wrath. And the good news of the gospel here is that the gospel calls us to repent to flee to Christ. He's a savior who's mighty and able to save. Like the thief, or excuse me, like the tax collector in the temple. As he came to see his wretched condition, there's only one prayer he could pray. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said that man went down to his house justified before a holy God. That's the call of the gospel. You don't bring your good works, your religious deeds. You come as you are, a sinner. That's what you bring to the table. And you look to Christ and call upon Christ, who has done everything necessary so that sinners could be forgiven, God's wrath satisfied, and you could be reconciled to a holy God. This is the love of God for his people. And if you're here today without Christ, I would encourage you and I would exhort you to flee to Jesus that you might live in him. And if you can say, by God's grace, Pastor, I can see this in my life. God has given me a love for him, for his son, and he's given me a love for his people, as ornery as they are sometimes. He's given me a love for them. And I know that doesn't come from within me. That has come by the grace of God and by the new birth 
And thanks be to God for such love with which he has loved us. Brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful passage of scripture. I would encourage you to memorize 1 John 4.10. There's the gospel in a capsule there in a nutshell. It's a wonderful truth. And uh, may we, by God's grace, may we seek to learn to love in the way that we are called to love, to love our neighbor as ourself, to even love our enemies, and to love especially those who have been begotten by God. And all of this for the glory and the honor of God, who himself loved us and gave himself for us. And so this love, if we see it in us, it promotes assurance that we belong to him. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you today for your holy and errant word. I thank you that it records for us the redemptive events of history where your love has been manifested in the person of the incarnate Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. And collectively here today, we lift up our voice to you and we give thanks and we give praise to you. Blessed be our God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual gift in Christ in the heavenly places. And we thank you. As we go from here, it is our prayer, it is my prayer that your spirit will take these things and seal them to our hearts. Give us, Lord, we pray, give us ears to hear, give us faith to respond, and all of this for the glory and the honor of Christ. And as we are dismissed this morning, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You are dismissed. Amen.